Let's read 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, Close your, uh, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties, all your cares on Him, because He cares for you. So let's pray with that in mind. Father, uh, we've come to the last chapter, Lord, and it says that we can cast all our cares upon you. I've got a couple. Uh, I just pray that this message makes sense. I throw that at you. And Father, I, I pray for our church, and there's people in here I know, God, that are going through the valley. They need to know you're good. They need to know there's something on the other side that's worth hanging in there for. And so, Lord, as we cast our cares on you, I ask you, God, to just fulfill these prayers, that you would show yourself to be good, and just make this uh, message make sense. Reach hearts with it, um, and help us stay awake through it. We love you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Do you know, everything, everything is better on the other side. It smells better, tastes better, it's just better. And by the other side, I mean you have this side, and you have the other side. I've got a picture of this side, it's kind of a dumpy old cabin, but it's easy on this side. It's where we start, it doesn't take much effort. It's, um, it's the way life is before you put any interest or experience or struggle through. Then you go through, over the mountain, the tough times in life. And in life, I mean perseverance, delayed gratification, struggle. And that brings you to the other side. And what the other side is, is the other side is the reward from going through the struggle. I was talking to my daughter about this when she in seventh grade. And Ginger, I'm sorry I always use you as an example, but that's my life. That's my life. We were having a discussion, we were outside, I was planting flowers, and we were talking about the struggle sometimes a 7th and 6th grade girl goes through in school, especially public school. There's a lot of, what I would say, pressure to feel pretty or to conform or be popular. And I said, Ginger, there's a beauty on this side, and there's a beauty on the other side. This side we call the beauty of popularity. It's easy to put on makeup, wear the right clothes, be with what I call the laughing girls, those girls who are popular and they laugh at everything. It's easy to do that. It's really easy to be fine beauty on this side. I said, but then there's another side, but it takes time, it takes building of character, listening, learning, trusting God, and then you get to the other side, and the other side is beauty with character. It's a deep beauty. It's a beauty that actually gets better and better over the years. I, Comparing it to flowers, on this side you have the annual. The annual is that flower that you plant at the beginning of spring. It's bloomed the whole summer, but then about the middle of August it dies and it never comes back. 
Then you have over here perennials. Perennials, maybe the first time you plant it, doesn't have much flower, but through the winter, the roots grow deep and they get strong and they spread out. And then every season after winter, the perennial gets bigger, more beautiful, more fragrant flowers. There's a beauty that is deeper on the other side of what I would say the mountain or life. You could say this with money. If you're just given money, you don't understand what it means to earn it and save it and then value it. There's what's a phrase that says, I would give anything for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. There's a simplicity of ignorance on this side. Actually, this isn't a political statement, but yesterday this march in Washington about guns, and the kids just get mad, and they want to shout their voices, but they don't really engage the conversation. It's easy to get mad and sound like you know everything. There's a simplicity on this side of complexity that really isn't deep is what I'd say. This is where cliche starts, where everybody says the same thing, where we say, just believe in yourself, trust your heart. But then there's a complexity. That means you start wrestling with the issues and you start looking at both sides and you start, oh, you see the ramifications. Then you come to a simplicity after complexity and it's deep. This is where Jesus' parables come in. He says so much and so little because he knows so much. Today we're going to talk about what I think is the most important other side. And I'm going to call it on the other side of humility. There's a glory on this side of humility, but then there's a glory on this side of humility. And we need to live for this glory, the glory on the other side of humility. So let's begin, and I want to begin on Glory before humility. He begins in chapter 1, verse 5. Peter does. And he says, I exhort the elders. Sorry, Ken. I exhort the elders. This word exhortation is the same word you get paraclete. The Holy Spirit often refers to himself as the paraclete. But exhort means I want to encourage you. I want to come alongside you. And I want to push you towards a kind of life. I want to spur you on. And he's going to talk to pastors, elders, and in verse 5, he's going to talk to younger people, and in all of you. And what he's going to ultimately spur us all, all to is at the end of verse 5, to be humble, one to another. That's his whole objective. He wants you, and you, and you, and me, to be humble. I, I think before we go any further, we need to be careful how we listen to Peter here. I, as I was thinking through this, when we hear the word exhortation, or when we hear promises, or we hear warnings or commands in the Bible, we need to, we need to just not let, them, not let them run off our back like water off a duck's back. See, I, I think sometimes, I, this is a very difficult job sometimes, because I think when I preach, I want you to like me. Like, you know a pastor did good if he was funny, or I stayed awake, or boy, I shed a tear. But the truth of the matter is a pastor's good is if you take this and it becomes true in your life. If you see this being true, and he's telling us, he's telling us to be humble people. That's what he's going to keep pounding on. But I guarantee you, many of you are going to leave here, then you're going to feel insulted, and you're going to say, I demand justice. Did you hear anything Peter said? 
He's writing this book to people that are going through unbelievable persecution. He's saying, just trust God. Trust God through this persecution. We don't go through anything, and yet we don't trust. We are seeking the glory all the time on this side of humility. What does that mean? So I, I'm sorry, Ken. This thing drives me crazy. I hate it. I'm sorry. I feel like Justin Bieber. It drives me nuts. But if you look up there, I have it kind of put like this. Go to the next slide. We have a glory, then we have humility, we have glory, and this is the first glory. The first glory is human. It's through human effort. It's very competitive. I want the spotlight. I want to be first. And this glory fades away. It doesn't last that long. And it's the glory you and I, we we have been born into, we know it the moment we leave our mother's womb. Mom, I want a bottle. Give it to me. You know, it's just in us. We demand. We want, we want to be better than our brothers and sisters. My sister gets something, I should get it, and even better. We demand front and center stage. It's just in us. It's called the glory on this side of humility. We want to be noticed, liked, thought well about, listened to, and followed, and we will do most anything for it. And we want it now. I do. You do. Moms sitting at home alone do. Athletes on the field do. Men and women in meetings do. Girls at the dance club do. Preachers most especially do. And that's one of the most dangerous parts of our job is we often steal the glory that should go to God alone. It's the glory in this side of humility. Peter's going to go into two examples that especially have to be careful of grabbing glory, which is preachers, and then the young people. But I'm going to actually extrapolate this out and saying, actually, if you go after this glory, it can not just be pastors, but parents and coaches and teachers and people that are bosses and those in authority. They have to be very careful not to grab glory. And he's going to give three signs to tell if you're grabbing this glory. The first one, look at verse 2. He's talking to pastors. He's saying, pastors, shepherd the flock of God. And the reason Peter says this, if you remember when um, Jesus went to the cross, he denied the Lord three times. No, I did not know him. No, I did not know him. I did not know him. And then Jesus comes back from the dead. He has a meeting with Peter on the beach. And he said, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. He said, if you love me, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love Yes, Lord, you, then feed my sheep. And that's this whole idea. He was exhorted by Jesus to shepherd the flock, feed the sheep. And Peter's just relaying that to pastors to do the same thing. But he says, watch out how you do it. Number one, don't do it under compulsion. Saying, show oversight without compulsion. What is compulsion? Compulsion means, in my heart, I do something, not because I want to, but I have to do this. I have to do this job. It's a rotten job. It's not doing a job out of delight. It's doing a job out of must and have to. Why do we feel obligated? Why do we feel obligated to do things? Why do we feel obligated to go to church? Because we want to be important, really. We want to be seen as important. 
People want others and even God to think they're important, so they grudgingly take jobs and titles and positions of leadership in order to be rewarded on this side of glory. I want the top job, so I get the top pay. I, but I don't do it with humility. I know pastors. I go to these pastors' meetings. I know pastors who love to be pastors. You know how you can tell people love to be pastors? How they, how they walk. They always do that with their coat. Why do they do that with their coat? Did you ever see me? They stretch their hands out like that, and they walk like that, and they talk about their job. And you get to a pastor's meeting, how big is your church? But when they talk about their people, they don't like them. Do you like your people? Do you like your kids in your house? Do you like them? Do you like the employees who work underneath you, or are they just a means to making your job look good? Doggone, I told you to, to make sure that cash register checked out, and it didn't. What, what's wrong with you? Do you care about them? Maybe they didn't, they didn't count the numbers right because their kid is an illness is at home, and that's all they're thinking about. I know pastors who will do a job, but they won't love Jesus. Why? So other people think they're important and great. Why do some people come to church so God doesn't punish them? Do they really like coming to church? No, but I'm there and I'm dressed up. Okay, that's your, God should be happy. Is that really why God wants you here? Is that what worship is? Second thing, uh, this side of glory is you want shameful gain or greed. You're greedy. Look at verse 2. Don't do it under compulsion, but do it willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain. The sight of glory always demands full compensation for my work. Even if it's bad work, I demand full compensation. A glory hunter thinks they deserve great reward for minimal effort. Peter says gain, however, isn't necessarily the problem. It's the shameful gain. It's gaining money off of the backs of people. Trying to get rich off of the poor. Milking people for your own personal profit. Pomp. Prosperity. It's about me. When you put something on Craigslist, do you give a right price or do you kind of scheme so you can get more off of something that's not that much? If you're working for pride on this side, everything's about money, title, position, cabins, cruises, nice cars, glory on this side of humility. And the third thing is really verse 3 talks about don't domineer over those in your charge. You've seen pastors like that, haven't you? I'm one like that all the time. Do what I say. Oh, Jack, Paul. In my office this Tuesday, I'm going to look at you mean like a pastor, and I'm going to say, God hates you. See, why power? I've seen pastors that are like that. Power to rule over others. That's a sign you're looking for glory on this side. I've seen bosses, teachers, dads, moms, bullies, and even grandmothers who also say that. Do what I say. They say it more out of the... Not because they really care, but they just want to be revered. How dare you look at me like that? Go back to your room. Well, Mom, I was just asking. Get back to your room. Some people get a big charge 
out of being the most important person in the room. Some people get a big charge out having peasants fear you. And peasants could be anybody from an employee underneath you to a child in your house. My brother-in-law's dad, he had a dad that was big, tall. He had a dog that had a thick chain. He loved having this dog that every time neighborhood kids walked by, the dog would pull against the dog house and scare the kids. He thought that was funny. You know, one of those guys that... <laughs> but my brother-in-law never went home. He was always at our house because he hated to be home. His dad wanted glory. Peter says, be an example to the flock, not an emperor. When a leader acts like this, or a pastor, or a parent, the young person will naturally fight back. They will say, no, I am not going to do what that tyrant says. And then what happens, it's rebellion. Because in our hearts, we hate to give glory to someone who craves it because our own glory can't stand it. So in a way, rebellion is a righteous attitude, but us also wanting glory for myself now. Look at what he says in verse 4, or verse 3. No, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. No! I'm not going to be subject to the elders. I'm not going to do what they say. If you are striving for glory on this side of humility, your kids will begin to believe that is what life is about. Because one of the worst things about pride is it begets pride. Rebellion comes first from a parent or a coach or a teacher who has pride. Pride gives birth to more pride. It's sick. It's really sick. I've seen people that they love proud pastors because proud pastors will vaunt. Proud pastors like to have people follow them that they can lift up. And if a proud pastor lifts somebody up, that person will only go to the proud pastor because they are proud. It's so weird. I don't know how to explain it to you. It's the strangest. Pride begets pride. Humility is hard. That is why in verse 5, he ends by saying, clothe yourselves, all of you. All of you. With humility. One towards another. What is humility? Humility means lowliness of mind, or it really means this. It means to get low. To get low. Philippians says this. Philippians says, treat other people better than yourself. If we did that, like truthfully, you want to change the world, do that. If we all did that right in here, all of us, all week long, treat, learn to treat other people better than ourselves, it would be mind-blowing. It would be mind-blowing. We'd sit at the dinner table and instead of telling our story, we would ask, honey, how are you doing today? I, no, I really want to know. Your opinion matter Or at work, what do you think about what should I do on this job? You really asking me your opinion? Yeah, I want to know. Because your opinion matters to me. Do you, do you do? It would change the world. It would change the world. But no, because we, we personally are sick of being mistreated, ignored, unwanted, and walked all over. And humility is hard because you feel like a dust rag or a floor mat often. Because I must fight for recognition. Who's going to give it to me? So i gotta, I got to work towards it. Why? Because I must. But didn't Jesus come 
to be served and not to serve? No, it's just the opposite. He came to serve and not be served. Jesus came to serve? Yeah. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He, he became nothing. It's crazy. Jesus knows his father well. He knows how his father views pride and humility. Look at verse 5 through 7. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. That is such a powerful statement. I, you could just stop on there. But then he keeps going. He goes, here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the first thing we can say about God is God fights pride. If you want to know what turns God's stomach, do you know what like knots his stomach up? What makes him roll his sleeves up? Peter says he opposes the proud. So when he sees somebody that thinks they're all that, he's like, all right, bring it on. Let's go. Could you, could you imagine God saying that to you? Oh, you want to fight? I, I've got thunder in my right hand and I've got mountains in my left. Let's go. What's really interesting, you want to see something funny? Read Job chapter 40. Job chapter 40, I think it's 6 through 10. He says, oh, oh, okay, you think you're like me? You want to you prove it? I'll tell you how you can prove it. If you think you're strong as God, here's what you do. Take every proud man and bring him low. And then I'll admit that you're just as strong as me. So what he's saying is he has the ability to take every proud person and he can annihilate them. But he likes it. All right, bring it on. He opposes the proud. His faith is against those who think they are top dog. I was reading in my studies, look at 1 Corinthians 4, 7. I would encourage you to underline this, circle it, highlight it, memorize it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. In the context is you have a disagreement in the church. Some people follow Apollos, some follow Paul, some follow Peter, and they're like, hey, we are following Apollos. That means we're in Apollos' church. We're, we're better than you know, Paul's church. It's kind of like us saying, well, we're Baptists. We're so much better than Methodists, Lutheran. You know, we're, just, we're just there. And so, or really, we, we do it individually. I'm just so much better than the guy I work across the cubicle from. I'm just better. Just better. And then so, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, wants you to ask this question to yourself. What do you have, this is the middle of verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? So that means intelligence, ability, looks, position in life, your parents. Were you given that or did you earn that? So you could ask these six foot eleven guys playing in one of the NCAA basketball teams, its arms go from that end to the, you know, that end of the wall to that end, and they got five times the size of my hands, and they can just take one jump and slam it down. Who is? Did you do that? Who made you like? Who gave you the gift? Who gave you, if you're a lawyer, the ability to think well and write well? Who gave you an artist the ability to draw well? God did. So what he says here in verse 7, if you received it, meaning if you didn't earn it or make it, if you were given it, why do you boast as if you did? 
God opposes that. He does not like that. As I was reading this, this 1 Corinthians 4, 7 brought to mind 2 Corinthians 4, 7. So I'd call this the 4, 7. This is this side. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 is this side. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7. It's the other side of the 4, 7. It's amazing. I call it the other side of 4, 7. This is this side we just read. Here's the other side. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul writes, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not from us. So in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, it belongs to me. Everything I have belongs to me. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, You know what? You are a jar of clay. If I took a jar of clay or if I took this glass and threw it against the wall, it's smashed. We're fragile. But why are we fragile? For the purpose of showing what's inside of us. What is inside of us? This all-surpassing power. The Spirit of God. God's alive in me. And when I'm humble and I admit it, it then can be shown. He can be revealed in my life. I like to think of a jar of clay as this old piece of pottery that has cracked. Imagine if you poured green antifreeze in there. If you ever had antifreeze, it's sticky and it's thick, but it will just seep through the cracks and it will kind of envelop the whole jar. That's what he means. When you are willing to admit your weakness, he starts enveloping your whole life. It's not about me. But on the, this side, it is about me. I, I'm going to boast about things I didn't earn. He says that's silly. Second thing that we can say is that he cares for us. Look at, he cares for his children, his kids. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. This is an amazing two, two verses. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, some verses say at due time, he may exalt you, so humble yourself, lower yourself, because he knows, and at the proper time, he'll lift you up. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for his kids. He says in verse, the middle of verse 5, he gives grace to those who are humble. Grace is his undeserved strength. It's his goodness. And it's given to the person who places themselves under. That means waits on him, stops striving, stops demanding, stops complaining, and knows that God's going to work in time. I like the old versions when it says due time. Due time means the expedient and exactly the right moment. Proper is the same idea, but due time. He'll show up in due time. Hang in there. So what do I do in due time? What do I do while I wait? Verse 7, cast your anxieties on them. Cast them on them. Throw it at them. So instead of fighting for myself, I should say, God, I'm, I'm worried if I, if I don't fight for myself, I'm going to be overlooked. Will you take care of me? God, I'm broke. I'm broke. Can you help? God, I'm, I'm depressed. I need you. When you go to God, God loves it. He loves it. I was thinking about um, his position. He loves to be called Father, and Jesus loves to be called our husband of the church. God loves the title of Father. It's, it's 
two of the titles they love. And I was thinking about the word father and husband. And often, um, often when I do postmarital counseling, if a couple's going through a tough time and they come in, and a lot of times the husband's just tired of his wife, tired of his kids, just wants to quit, I ask the husband, I said, can I just, I know this might sound rude, but who's kind of the one who initiated sex for you guys to have children? Well, I did. Okay, so you started this problem. If you started this problem, it's your responsibility. Who's the one that proposed? Well, I did. Okay, so you, you started a double problem. She's your wife because it's your fault. She's your wife. Both of these are your fault. So you have to be responsible. And most of the time when, guy, when it clicks, it takes time for guys to click. Oh, yeah, I oh, am. Yeah, you're right. I did, I did propose to her. Why? I was drinking a lot of beer. Well, it's still your fault. Still your fault. You're responsible. I was thinking of my own dad. I'm telling you, there's times when it was tough. I know I bring my dad up a lot, but I had a good father. And I think sometimes we miss a model of a good father. I can remember it was a tough time. It was during the late 70s. The economy was down, and my dad is a salesman, and he sold air conditioners in Minnesota and North, North Dakota. Like they really need them up there. You know, I mean, it doesn't get 40 degrees until August for one week and it goes back to 30 the next week. And my dad's like, oh, they, uh, you know, it's not, people aren't buying it too much. And I can remember, I was a worried, I always worried. When I was a little kid, we'd drive, we'd be driving somewhere and my dad would make a joke. Hey, you see that house and be this little shack? Go, I'm, I'm going to buy that house. We're going to live there. No, I was terrified all the time. But when my dad said, yeah, I'm not making many sales, I'd be like, oh no, we're going to, we're going to be on skid row. And I can remember even my sisters were a little worried. My dad would have family meetings. He says, we're going to be okay. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. Don't worry. I remember that one really cold winter? I'll never forget this. You might have heard this story, but I love to tell it. The electricity and the power went out because the gale force winds were coming off of Lake Erie. So my town, the power went out. And it was cold, and you know, we're terrified as kids. We're going to freeze to death in our house. My dad said, don't worry about it. So he got me and my brother, and we went with him to the hardware store and bought bags of coal to put in the fireplace to light to keep the house warm. And when we went to the hardware store, they had more expensive bags of coal, cheap ones. One were like $10, and one were 3 So he bought a lot of the cheap ones set up. We have to stay warm longer. We have more coal. So he lit this coal in the fireplace, and we got these couches around, blankets on us, and we're sitting around the fireplace. It was one of my most enjoyable memories, because we told stories and sang a lot. Missed those days. But I remember my sister went up to the bathroom, and when she's in the bathroom, the power came on. So all the lights in the house go on, and while she's in the bathroom, she looks in the mirror, and her whole face is black, and there's coal. Coal is floating in the air, and we go downstairs, and my dad bought this cheap coal that you light it, and it's just ashes everywhere, and the carpet's black, and our hair's black, and we, my mom wasn't happy about it, I'll say, but Rita, we're warm, don't worry about it. My dad was just, we'll be okay. Do you think God worries about how you're going to be? But God, I'm failing. It's, oh, poor kid, there's nothing I can do for you. I only hold lightning and thunder and everything else, but I'm not strong enough to take care of your bills, your health, or anything else. He loves you. He loves you. 
Third thing is he can tame lions. Look at verse 8. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced. Oh, verse 8 is be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. And often when we hear this resist him, so first of all he's saying the devil's real and the devil wants to destroy you. He wants to tear you apart like a lion. And so he's saying it's true. So be sober-minded. That means live Live in what I would say spiritual intelligence. Don't be a fool. And then he says, resist them. And usually when we see resist them, I hate, I, Aaron, you won't mind me say this. We, we jump sometimes on this charismatic carnival ride where, oh, I got to resist them. All right, I'm going to start talking like you. I bind you, Satan. I bind you. Like, like my words really matter. I'll bind you. And then I can imagine Satan up there. Listen to, listen to that little guy. I, Come on. But there's a corollary verse. Listen to it in James. Go to James. James chapter 4. It's a corollary to what we just read. You'll see what I mean. And it's all about humility. It's all about thinking low of myself. Like really my words aren't that powerful. I cannot, I cannot produce power because I said a word loud or I said it in a southern accent that I got from the preacher on TV. Look at verse 6 through 10. You'll understand. He gives more grace. God gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We just read that. He wants to give his strength, his power to those who are humble. So then he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we do this? Do we yell again? No, verse 8. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. That means in heart and in mind and in prayer, draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. And the idea is, when God's near to you, do you think the devil's going to come around? It's sort of like, instead of you fighting the devil, why don't you just say, hey Jesus, could I talk to you? That, that lion got out of his cage again. Oh, he did? That rotten lion, I'll go get him. You think when Jesus goes after the lion, the lion thinks he can take on Jesus? All through the New Testament, the demons would see Jesus and they would shriek in fear. We draw near, when we draw near to God and the spirits surrounding us, Satan will flee. He'll flee. And it's an act of humility to allow God to deal with it than really thinking, I am all that. Now we get to the most important point, which is verse 10. It's the other side of humility. Listen to verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, because to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter defines the duration of suffering as a little while. That's a tough one, because we're in the middle of it. When you're stuck in a hospital bed, I went to see a guy who got a terrible, terrible surgery this past week, which is tough. He's having a difficult time through it. He's stuck in bed. 
or you're in the middle of a bad marriage, or even a valley of depression. Some of you go through that. Some of you have a tendency to go into a valley of depression. It's a real thing. And you feel sort of like the psalmist in Psalm 13, how long must I suffer, Lord, and every day have sorrow in my heart? It's tough. It seems like forever. Peter says it's just a little while. It's a little while, comparative to the glory on the other side. Peter defines the other side as the God of grace's glory. So God of grace is it's His glory. It's divinely obtained. You don't earn it. It's a gift. And when He bestows it upon you, it will never fade away. Look at verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Unfading. It never ends. It doesn't stop. It doesn't compare to this. This is fading. This is unfading. Some people say, well, isn't that just for pastors? This unfading crown. and Isn't that for just special people? There's about five crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament. And some people say, well, those who look forward to Jesus' coming will get a crown. Those who are faithful. That's probably true. But one thing you need to remember, if there are special crowns given when we get to heaven, we throw them at Jesus' feet. Because really it's about Him. I also think it's a metaphor for this crown is Christ's righteousness now is mine. I am made. I'm turned into glory. What does that mean? I don't have any idea. What, what is this glory? I don't know. I don't know. I was trying to write about it this week. I, I think C.S. Lewis has something when he says, every day we walk among people that are going to be immortal. Every one of you is going to live forever. Not because you and of yourself are immortal, but because God himself allows you to live and move and have your being in him who is immortal, and he's going to keep you alive forever. The question is, what are you going to look like in your immortality? C.S. Lewis says, if we could see each other, some of us would look like gods, shining in brightness. Charles Spurgeon believes in our, in our heavenly bodies, we'll be able to lift trunks of trees and rip them out of the ground like nothing. Some of you will look like monsters because you no longer have the glory of Jesus on you, you become fashioned as a person who's in torment. I do know this, though, about glory. When we receive it, the pain will immediately fade away. The, pers the pain of perseverance, the pain of suffering, the pain of really tough times will immediately Fade away. Every mom knows what I'm talking about. Every single one who went through nine months and then they're given the child on your lap in the hospital room. Instantly, that's all you think about. It's strange. When we go to glory, the first thing we're going to see, I think, is we're going to see the face of Christ. I don't think we'll be able to think of anything else the moment we finally see his face. We'll understand. It'll make sense. 1 Corinthians says death and suffering will be swallowed up in victory. The idea of being swallowed up, if you swallow something, it doesn't necessarily extinguish, it adds to something else. So if I eat food, the proteins add to my strength. 
in heaven, I believe the pain and humility we've experienced in life will add to the immensity of my glory. The more you sustain and endure and persevere, the greater your shine will be as an immortal. If you think about this week, okay, so this week, today is supposed to be Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is on a church calendar when we remember what I would say this side of the cross. When Jesus came in on a donkey and everybody sings Hosanna, and we love church for that, we wave palm trees, but then what happens for the next week? He's spit upon, he's laughed at, he's mocked, and he's crucified. This is called Passion Week. It goes through the pathos of the Father abandoning him. Peter in the book says, in chapter 2, he said, remember what Jesus did and live in the same way. Follow his example. Do you? If you really claim to know him, are you humble? I mean, really, are you humble? Or are you fighting to be known? Are you demanding recognition? Are you upset when you're not valued? Why? Peter saw the thorns personally. Peter saw the crossbeam Jesus carried. Peter saw the spit that fell off of probably the part of his chin where his beard was ripped out. And Peter says, are you really his? If you are, persevere. Peter also was on the mountain when he squinted at Jesus because his clothes were like lightning. He saw his glory. He got to taste it. And he tasted, even if it was for a moment, he tasted it. And after he tasted it, he said, it's worth it. This side of glory is worth all of that. All of it. That's why he says in verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever. Amen. In verse 12, that's why then he exhorts again to stand firm. Verse 12, stand firm then. Stand firm in what you believe. Don't give up. Stand firm. And in verse 14, he ends by saying, peace. Be at peace. I think he ends that way because when we're not humble, we are not at peace. So stand firm and be at peace. 